Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, I continue with the third part of a four-part series on alchemy, this time looking at the stages of the alchemical opus and their meaning for the work of the symbolic life. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. profound darkness that shrouds the alchemical procedure comes from the fact that although the alchemist was interested in the chemical part of the work, he also used it to devise a nomenclature for the psychic transformations that really fascinated him. Every original alchemist built himself, as it were, a more or less individual edifice of ideas. The method of alchemy, psychologically speaking, is one of boundless amplification. So far in this series on alchemy, I've given an overview of the relationship between alchemy and the symbolic life, and I've looked at the meaning of the symbol of the prima materia. And in this third episode of the series, I'm going to be talking about the opus, the work itself. In particular, I'm going to discuss the different stages through which one passes during the course of the alchemical work. Now, technically speaking, it was the material with which the alchemists were working the metals and substances and compounds that passed through the various phases. But as we've already seen in this series, the opus was both a physical and a spiritual process. The material being worked was, at one and the same time, the substance in the laboratory and the alchemist's own soul. And Jung makes this double nature of the work very clear in our opening quote. Although the alchemist was interested in the chemical part of the work, he also used it to devise a nomenclature for the psychic transformations that really fascinated him. And this brings up a difficulty in presenting the stages of the opus. Every original alchemist, Jung goes on to say, built himself, as it were, a more or less individual edifice of ideas. That is to say that there are as many versions of the alchemical process as there are alchemists describing it. 
And this is because it's not just a practical and objective work, but a personal, subjective one as well. Each alchemist's description is colored by their individual inner psychological experience of the process. In order to describe the general features of the opus, then, we have to bring some kind of order to where it seems not to exist. It's challenging, to say the least, to find any clear statements, even in Jung's writings, of the sequence of the work. One suspects that Jung is hesitant to oversimplify the complexity of the alchemical symbolism by approaching it in a too systematic way. His method is amplification, after all, not so much organization. At times, he expresses doubt that it is even possible to find order within all the disorder. In my opinion, he writes, it is quite hopeless to try to establish any kind of order in the infinite chaos of substances and procedures. Seldom do we even get an approximate idea of how the work was done, what materials were used, and what results were achieved. Given all that, it's probably best to offer a caution up front about what follows. What I'm going to present here is based on a common description of the stages of the opus. It is, in a sense, the traditional form given for the progression of the work. In order to be as clear as possible, I'm going to adhere to this traditional form and refrain from looking at any of the many variations that surround it. It's important to recognize, then, that my description here is going to necessarily be partial and incomplete. And furthermore, it's guided inevitably by my own experiences and my own temperament. This is the nature of the material. One brings one's own self to it. Now, personally, I find it helpful to think in terms of the analogy of jazz improvisation. Each jazz musician brings his or her own style, sensibility, and skill to the interpretation of a piece of music. And generally, every improv is based upon the chord structure of a song. And this structure, known as the chord progression or the changes, is a kind of skeleton on which the musician builds the improvisation. The variations of melody and rhythm that one can find within a given chord progression are infinite, but the underlying structure of the song remains the same. Now, sometimes it's true. A player will substitute one chord for another, but this usually follows certain rules and does not disrupt the inner coherence of the tune. And so my own sense is that the sequence of stages of the alchemical opus that I'm going to outline here is something like the underlying chord progression in jazz. 
While the many variations found in the alchemical literature correspond to the different improvisations made by the different individuals coming to the material and interpreting it anew. Each variation, like each improvisation, is colored by the personality and particular vision of the alchemist doing the work. And my concern in this episode is the chord progression itself, that is, the foundational sequence of the stages of the opus. The basic sequence is as follows. The Negredo, the Albedo, the Citronitis, and finally, the Rubedo. And these names refer to the colors that characterize each of the stages. The color of the Negredo is black. That of the Albedo is white. Citronitis is yellow and Rubedo is red. And these colors are often expressed as processes. In that case, we get the blackening, the whitening, the yellowing, and the reddening. And finally, each stage has one of the four traditional elements associated with it. There's a lot of variation to this aspect, but the most usual form is that the negredo is associated with earth, albedo with water, citronitis with air, and rubedo with fire. The negredo is the first stage of the work. It's the initial darkness that dominates at the beginning. Sometimes it's used as a synonym for the prima materia, in which case it is, as Jung writes, the black earth in which the gold or the lapis is sown like a grain of wheat. The lapis, by the way, refers to the philosopher's stone, which I'll be talking about next time. It's the gold of the opus, and it's present as a latent potential in the initial chaotic state. But it's that chaotic state that characterizes the negredo. It's a chaos, a massa confusa, a confused mass in which everything is mixed together with everything else. This stage is sometimes referred to as black blacker than black, and often has a depressive quality to it. Ignorance, confusion, depression, heaviness, darkness, messiness are all prominent at this stage. Here one might look at the task or the road that lies ahead of them and have no idea how to proceed, see no way to get from here to wherever they have to go. The first goal of the work, then, is to gain some clarity within the confusion, to start to bring some order to the chaos, some light to the darkness. And this is the work of the albedo stage. The albedo is called the whitening, which points to a kind of purification process. One of the images of this part of the work is washing. The dark, mixed-up, soiled material is washed, 
over and over again, cleansed of its impurities and contaminants. Or perhaps the raw material is placed in a solution, a bath of some kind, and dissolved, allowing the different elements to be separated out, one from the other. Many references are made to the importance of the human mind in this phase of the process. And this suggests that the psychological condition that accompanies the albedo stage is one of reflection. The capacity for reflection, then, can be seen as the solution in which the initial confused state is dissolved. And it's through reflection that the chaos of the negredo, that jumble of feelings, impulses, and the hidden seeds of development, gives way to the more coherent potentials of the albedo. It is, in a way, writes Marie-Louise von Franz, the first stage of becoming quieter and more detached and objective more philosophically detached. The achievement of the albedo is a significant development in alchemy, in many ways as highly prized, according to Jung, as if it were the final goal. But there's still more work to be done. As Jung notes, it is the silver or moon condition which still has to be raised to the sun condition. The third stage, the citronitis, forms the bridge between the albedo and the last stage of the rubedo. And this stage, Jung tells us, is usually omitted in the later alchemical texts. And the four stages are then collapsed into three, negredo, albedo, rubedo. And this makes it difficult to discover a great deal about this aspect of the work. But there are a few hints. For example, one text states that the citronitis produces the eyewash of the philosophers, about which Jung comments, if they wash their eyes with it, they will easily understand the secrets of philosophy. And we can infer from this, then, that the citronitis has something to do with insight and illumination, where the albedo stage enabled a kind of discernment of the different elements that were massed together in the negredo. The citronitis brings an even clearer perception and comprehension of them. According to one alchemist, yellow, the color of the citronitis, is the color of the intellect, which here should be thought of not as rational thought, but something more like a faculty of inner perception, what we figuratively call the mind's eye, or just simply understanding. In other words, we could say that with the achievement of the citronitis, what in the previous stage had been mere potentials, here become clear possibilities. Now, before moving on to the final stage, the rubedo, I want to bring in an excerpt 
from a text by the alchemist Michael Meyer. And this passage is quoted in Jung's book, Psychology and Alchemy, and it presents a concise description of Meyer's version of the four stages of the opus. And it goes like this. Similarly, the philosophers maintain that the quadrangle is to be reduced to a triangle, that is, to body, spirit, and soul. These three appear in three colors which precede the redness, the body, or earth, in Saturnine blackness, the spirit in lunar whiteness, like water, and the soul, or air, in solar yellow. Then the triangle will be perfect, but in its turn it must change into a circle, that is, into unchangeable redness. I noted in the first installment of this series, in the episode titled Alchemy, Mirror of the Soul, that the alchemical language is often impenetrable. And there's certainly an element of that in this passage, right? But in part, that's because there is a lot that is packed into just three sentences. For instance, there's a statement of the sequence of the stages that we've been looking at. The blackness, the whiteness, the yellowing, and the redness. Negredo, albedo, citronitis, rubedo. Meyer also adds several layers of associations to these stages. The negredo he connects to the element of Earth, the planet Saturn, and to the body. The albedo he connects to water, the moon, and the spirit. And for Citronitis, it's the air, the sun, and the soul. Now, we could spend a lot of time digging into the vast web of meanings connected to all of these symbolic associations. And that's what Jung does in his works on the psychology of alchemy. But for now, it's enough to notice that there is a movement here from the dense and the dark to the spacious and the light. The compactness of earth gives way to the flowing of water, which in turn becomes the free movement of the air. The heavy darkness of Saturn becomes the soft glow of the moon, becomes the dawning light of the sun. To the solidity of the body is added the lightness of the spirit and the soul. And this is combined in Meyer's statement with some strange geometric symbolism, right? The quadrangle, the triangle, and the circle. And these are best understood as an image of another progression, with the quadrangle as the starting point and the circle as the goal. Now, the circle represents a condition of wholeness in which all elements are held together in a state of harmony. So if that's the goal, 
we can assume that at the beginning, a state of disharmony reigns. And this is what the quadrangle represents. If you think of a rectangle, the different sides are seen as being in opposition to each other. They're held apart and stand at sharp angles to each other. In the circle, there are no oppositions, no sides, no angles. All parts are equal and all stand in the same relationship to the center. Now, the passage from the quadrangle to the circle goes by way of the triangle. And Meyer is explicit that the triangle means the three components of body, spirit, and soul, which, as we've just seen, are associated to the first three stages of the opus. He also makes it clear that the whole process culminates in the rubedo, the redness, which, as it turns out, is a characteristic of the circle, of wholeness. Then the triangle will be perfect, he says, but in its turn it must change into a circle, that is, into unchangeable redness. And so all of this, finally, brings us back to where we left off earlier, to the description of the meaning of the rubedo, the last of the four stages, and the consummation of the work of the opus. So far, we've looked at the first three stages, right? The negredo, the albedo, and the citronitis. These, as we've heard, are frequently referred to through the imagery of night and day, moon and sun. They represent a movement, so to speak, from the pitch black dark of night to the soft glow of the moon to the budding light of dawn. The final stage, then, would be the shining forth of the sun in the full light of day. And this is the stage of the rubedo. The rubedo is about making things real, joining spirit and soul with the body in a conscious way such that possibilities can be transformed into realities. The primary symbol of this stage is that of blood, which of course is suggested by the redness that characterizes the rubedo. Blood is that which gives life to bodies. The work up to this point has proceeded from the confusion of the negredo to the essential element of reflection in the albedo to the experience of insight or illumination in the citronitis. These last two, of course, reflection and insight, are indispensable. But if we stop at this point, we remain stuck in a kind of abstract state. What we have gained from our efforts so far must be brought back into the world in some way. As Jung puts it, in order to make it come alive, it must have blood. It must have what the alchemists call the rubedo, the redness of life. The point, after all, is not to think life, 
but to live it. And this ultimately is the takeaway. Consciousness is not for the sake of making us simply better observers of life, but to enable us to be full participants in life. The stages of the opus can be seen as operative in many different domains of our lives, right? We can see them at work, for instance, on the psychological level, as when the darkness of a difficult emotional state is washed, so to speak, over and over again in the waters of reflection, this long, hard work eventually giving way to insight and understanding. Or we can see them reflected in the creative process, when someone starting with a confused jumble of ideas or images pours their care and attention into them until a clear vision and direction for the work begins to emerge. Regardless of how the sequence manifests, though, the work is not done until it reaches its culmination as a lived reality, until vision or insight are infused with the blood of Rubedo, until we are able to embody to the best of our ability the fullness of being. Then, says Jung, the opus magnum is finished. The human soul is completely integrated. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's parting words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the Support the Show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. A moment ago, I talked about embodying the fullness of being to the best of our ability. And I qualified it like that because, of course, the work of a human life is never really completed, right? As long as we are alive, there is some horizon toward which we are headed. Though the stages of the opus are described in a linear way, with a beginning, a middle, and an end, we shouldn't be deceived into thinking that it will take such a neat form in our own experience. The object as Jung points out, is not so much our arrival at any final destination, but simply that we set out on the way, 
as he writes, The goal is important only as an idea. The essential thing is the opus which leads to the goal. That is the goal of a lifetime. Until next time.